The first reading can be found on page 52 in the Old Testament section of the Pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 1, starting at verse 6 and continuing to chapter 2, verse 10. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. The Israelites are oppressed. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Birth and youth of Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, plastered it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. 
She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for them, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The second reason reading may be found on page two in the New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter two, reading verses 13 to 18. The escape to Egypt. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The massacre of the infants. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. He sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or younger according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentations. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. Now going to the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31, reading verses 15 to 17 and then 31 to 34. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. A new covenant. 
The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I had made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, said the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, said the Lord. For I will forgive them their iniquities and remember their sin no more. Thanks be to God for his word. Last week, a group of us from the church went to visit the Ashurbanipal exhibition at the British Museum. In case you haven't heard of him, and if you haven't, you should certainly go and see the exhibition. Ashurbanipal was king of the largest empire in the world at the time. It was known as the Assyrian Empire. He was king for about 40 years, from 668 BCE to 627 BCE. And he was the son of Esarhaddon, the grandson of Sennacherib, and the great-grandson of Sargon II. And these four men, this dynasty, presided over an empire that stretched from Cyprus in the west to Iran in the east, and at one point even included Egypt. Its capital, Nineveh, in present-day Iraq, was the world's largest city at a time when the Greek city-states like Athens and Sparta were still in their infancy and Rome was just a small settlement. And Ashurbanipal wasn't modest about being king of the Assyrian Empire. He called himself king of the world. Quite a claim, but given the size of the empire, it wasn't far from the truth. One of the things that the exhibition at the British Museum left us in no doubt about was that the Assyrians were a bloodthirsty lot when it came to war. They were merciless with their enemies and brutal in their punishments. And the significance of the Assyrians for us this morning is that they lie firmly in the background to the distressing story from Matthew's Gospel known to us as the story of the massacre of the innocents. Uh, just in case you're, you can't see it, on the left there we've got one of their reliefs of a siege going on, and on the right you've got them executing some of their prisoners. There is a famous poem by Lord Byron describing the siege of Jerusalem at the hands of the Assyrians led by Ashurbanipal's grandfather Sennacherib. Some of you may know it. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Sennacherib never actually succeeded in destroying Jerusalem, 
but the centuries of Assyrian attacks on the kingdom of Israel had an effect and entered deep into the memory and theology of the people of Israel. How could it be, they wondered, that such a vicious, murderous enemy could time and time again be victorious over the chosen people of God? In 721 BCE, the Assyrians had effectively wiped out the northern kingdoms of Israel. So if you know your Israelite history, you have a united Israel under King David and under his son Solomon, and they build the temple. Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, and then and Solomon dies. He has two sons, I get this right, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they divide the kingdom between them, north and south. So from then on, uh, through this period of Israelite history, it's divided. And in 721, uh, the Assyrians came in and basically destroyed the northern kingdom. That's the bit shown in green on that map. From that time on, the focus of Israel's story moved to the southern kingdom called Judah and the area around Jerusalem. That's the bit shown in purple on that map. And most of the stories and texts that have come down to us and are found in the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament as we call it, are those that have been preserved by the southern tribe of Judah. Many of the stories of the old northern kingdom are, we must assume, lost to us, as the libraries were burned by the Assyrians. And in our reading earlier from the book of Jeremiah, written in about 586 BCE, at the time of the fall of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom to the Babylonians, who eventually succeeded the Assyrians as the dominant world power. In that reading, we heard the great prophet lamenting the destruction of the northern kingdom a couple of hundred years earlier and wondering before God what the future would hold for his own southern kingdom as they faced the threat of the Babylonians. A voice is heard in Ramah, he says, Ramah just outside Jerusalem, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The northern tribes are gone their children murdered or exiled, and we're next, thinks Jeremiah. This is the message of Jeremiah, the southern prophet. Interestingly, Jeremiah doesn't leave it there, despite his reputation for doom and gloom. You may have heard someone called a real Jeremiah, meaning that they're always miserable. But when push came to shove, Jeremiah did hold out a hand of hope to his readers in the midst of their distress. Yes, it's true, he says, the northern kingdoms have fallen to the Assyrians. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, is weeping in her grave because the children of Israel are no more. And yes, it looks like the one remaining tribe of Judah, named after her one surviving tribal son and its capital, Jerusalem, it looks like they're going the same way. But keep your voice from weeping says Jeremiah, and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children, children shall come back to their own country. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, says the Lord. 
But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the thing is, in, I'm reading from Matthew, where he tells the story of the massacre of the innocents at the hand of Herod. Matthew knows Jeremiah well and quotes him to help his readers understand his story of the massacre of the innocents at the time of the birth of Jesus. Matthew knows that just at the point where all seems at its most bleak, when all seems lost, when evil appears to have the upper hand, God's promise remains that a new way will be found to bring people back to a life-giving relationship with their God who has not, after all, abandoned them. And so Matthew uses this reference to Jeremiah, quoting the first bit but inferring the rest, to place his story of the birth of Jesus firmly in the world of the exile of Israel to Babylon. It may seem as though Herod, the first century ruler, is all-powerful, and his murderous tyranny may seem unstoppable, but... Matthew wants his readers to know that God is at work in a fragile refugee family from Bethlehem to bring about a new world where suffering is redeemed and where love triumphs over hatred. But it's not just the exile in Babylon that Matthew has in mind here. He's running more than one story at once, layer upon layer, to help his readers understand the significance of what they're reading about Jesus. So in addition to the Babylonian exile, he also has the Egyptian exodus in view, the much older story of the release of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Jesus isn't just part of a story about bringing people home from exile. He's also involved in bringing them out of slavery. Jesus isn't just a prophet after the manner of Jeremiah. He will be a prophet after the manner of Moses, leading his followers in a new exodus. You see, in this very short little bit from Matthew, he's doing a lot of things to help people understand Jesus. Jesus is leading people out of exile, and he's leading people out of slavery. He is Jeremiah, and he is Moses. And Matthew makes this clear in another one of his scriptural quotations, this time from the prophet Hosea. Matthew says that Jesus and his family's flight to Egypt to escape Herod is to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet by the Lord, out of Egypt I have called my son. And so with the Israelite slavery in Egypt in one hand and the Israelite exile in Babylon in the other, two instances in the story of God's people when all had seemed lost to a violent and vindictive ruler, Herod uses these to frame the story of Herod and the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem. Herod... Matthew is saying to his readers, is really just another pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's really just another Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He's really just another Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria. And Matthew's readers would have known this, of course, because by the time Matthew's gospel was written, Herod had been dead for about eight decades. But Matthew's point isn't about history, it's about theology. Matthew is inviting his readers to realise that these kinds of rulers crop up from time to time in human history. 
And they can come from any nation, from Egypt, from Assyria, from Babylon, from Athens, from Rome, or even, like Herod, from Israel itself. Any nation can produce its tyrant, because Herod is a product of the human condition. When we were in Palestine recently, I got a bit obsessed by Herod the Great. They didn't call him the Great for nothing. He was, in many ways, an astonishing ruler. His building projects were incredible, from the hanging palace of Masada to the Herodian palace near Jericho to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem to the aqueduct of Caesarea. Even now, 2,000 years later, his building projects are there to see. He was a great military leader. He could be generous in his philanthropy. He was loved and hated in equal measure, probably by his subjects, but he had a violent and paranoid streak a mile wide, allegedly leading Augustus, the Roman emperor, to comment that it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. So, in addition to all the good things he did, he executed his own dearly loved wife and her mother and his brother-in-law and his two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. So, you know, with Herod, you need to take the great with the not-so-great. But Matthew's story of the massacre of the innocents, the massacre of the children of Bethlehem, whilst having no corroborative evidence beyond the story in the Gospel, certainly fits what we know of the nature of the man. We're probably talking about 20 children here, given the size of Bethlehem at the time. You know, small town, all the children under the age of two. We're not talking thousands. And it is quite easy to imagine that somebody like Herod would choose to execute 20 baby boys in a small town rather than run the risk that one of them might grow up to pose a threat to his dynasty and legacy. When we were at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, uh, a priest came and unlocked a basement room for us. We had to hang around for a while until he appeared, but we were on a promise that he was going to turn up. And he took us down into the crypt underneath the Church of the Nativity, which you don't normally get into. And he showed us this astonishing collection of skulls and other bones. These are photos that I took whilst we were there. And uh, he showed us a cabinet, which is the thing on the top right, that had much smaller bones in it. And he told us that these are allegedly the bones of the children massacred by Herod. I don't actually think he believed it. And I certainly don't think he expected us to believe it. But they are the bones of children. And so there is a truth here about human mortality in infancy and about the suffering of parents. And then he showed us a painting which I found more moving than I would have expected. I didn't get a great photo of the whole thing, uh, which is actually about 10 foot across, but here's a detail. Uh, the, the, the one on the right's the whole thing. Uh, the one on the left is a, a detail. It's quite, quite horrific. The thing is, the significance of this story of soldiers killing children on the orders of Herod, the significance of this for Matthew is not its historicity. It's its theology. Because in his decision to execute the children, Herod immediately becomes Pharaoh, 
trying to wipe out the people of God. He becomes Ashurbanipal, destroying the children of Rachel so that they are no more. He becomes Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, trying to kill the one remaining tribe child of Rachel. And Jesus becomes Moses, the baby who escapes and lives to bring freedom and life to those enslaved. God is at work, says Matthew, even when it seems as if all is lost. Jeremiah and Hosea bear witness to the fact that God does not give up, bringing life into the darkness of the world. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably at this point muttering in your head, yes, well, that's all very well, but tell it to the mothers of the children who died at the hands of Herod's soldiers. And here we face a very real question that we need to confront head on. If Matthew wants to claim that God is at work, even in a story as horrific as the massacre of the innocents of Bethlehem, then what does that say about God? After all, if God can send an angel to have a quiet word with Joseph so that he and Mary can flee with baby Jesus to Egypt, why couldn't that God do the same thing to all the other parents who sat at home that afternoon not knowing that a soldier was about to come banging on the door? This is the question of theodicy, as theologians call it. It's the question of why God permits evil. And I think Matthew raises it for us very starkly. And I don't think he's blind to it either. It's the same question we might ask of the Exodus story, where the innocent Egyptian firstborn children die in order that the Pharaoh's mind might be changed and that the children of Israel might be set free. It's the same question we might ask of the exile story, where only a remnant survived to rebuild Israel and many others, including the whole northern kingdom, are destroyed. And Matthew does, I think, at least begin to offer an answer to this problem of why God permits such horrific evils. And I think he does so through his quotation from the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The key words here are the last two. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The assertion that Jesus is the son of God. You see, what is at stake here is what kind of a God do we think God is? Is God a God of power and might and authority? A God who clicks his fingers and makes people jump? Because if so, then God has some very real questions to answer about how that power is used both in history and, I might say, in the present. If God is all-powerful, I'm pretty cross with him because there's a lot of stuff he ought to be doing that he isn't. But I think Matthew is inviting us to not see God in that way. It's like Matthew is saying to his readers, that isn't actually God. That is just a deified version of Herod the Great. It's Pharaoh, it's Nebuchadnezzar, it's the emperor, but it's not God. 
Rather, Matthew places God in his story in the person of the baby Jesus, a human at risk, on the run, helpless, innocent. This is deep theology because it questions our whole notion of who God is. If God is an almighty God, all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient and omnipresent, then God runs the risk of becoming a dictator God or, at worst, a tyrant God. And Matthew does not want his readers to see God in that way. He's been casting his mind back to Moses and Jeremiah and Amos, reflecting on times in his people's history when people have turned in a combination of worship and desperation to a powerful nationalistic God who they hope will fight on their behalf, righting wrongs and slaying enemies. And Matthew's reflection is that when people worship this kind of God, things don't get better, they just get worse. Because this God is just a projection of the will to power. The all-powerful God is just the tendency that we have as humans to tyrannise and dominate, written across the heavens. And Matthew wants to change that script. The God Matthew is proclaiming through the pages of his gospel is not the God of the land, the God of the people, the God of the victorious, the God of all power and all might. Rather, the God Matthew proclaims through Jesus is the God of the weak, the homeless, the stateless, and the victims. The God who is made known in Jesus, God's son, is a vulnerable God and a powerless God. And it is this God that we are invited to worship. And if this makes us feel uncomfortable, then good. Because we too like to make God after our own image and then to endue our God with our hopes and dreams of power and domination. Our society is predicated on the use of power. And collectively, we worship gods. We worship the gods of the market, the military, and the masses, rejoicing when things go well and cursing and blaming when they don't. And as Christians, we long for a national deity. This place used to be a Christian country, we say in disgust, tutting, wishing we could get back to the day when God fought on our behalf. But... The God who is discovered in the infant Jesus is a very different God to this. This is not a God who stops the suffering of the world by clicking his fingers. Neither is it a God who causes the suffering of the world for some inscrutable purposes of his own. Rather, this is a God who enters into the suffering of the world to transform it from the inside to show that there is a different way of being human where revenge gives way to forgiveness and fear gives way to trust and hatred gives way to love. This is a God who dies to bring life. This is the God of the cross. And when life is overwhelming in its terror and sadness, at either a personal or an international level, this is the God who comes again and again in the baby Jesus, showing that there is greater strength in vulnerability 
than in all the armies of the world combined. So when we find ourselves facing another Herod, when evil seems unassailable in our lives and our world, when Ashurbanipal or Nebuchadnezzar or the emperor of Rome or whoever rises up in our world, we are invited by Matthew to hear once again that Jesus, the helpless infant Jesus, is God's son. And that God's plan for the salvation of all things, including us, rests in the arms of a refugee couple from the Middle East. So as we struggle to find the resources to welcome even one refugee family to Westminster, as we wrestle with big questions about the future of our country, as we battle through our daily lives with all their complexities and stresses and depressions and sadnesses, we meet in Jesus, the God who comes to us not in power to fix everything, but in weakness and vulnerability, fully entering into all that we face and hold. And we hear the whisper of the ancient prophet, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall just know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Let us pray. In peace, let us pray to the God of love. Heavenly Father, whose children suffered and still suffer at the hands of tyrants, though they have done no wrong, by the suffering of your Son and by the innocence of our lives, frustrate all evil designs and establish your reign of justice and peace. Righteous God, your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, dwelt among us and shared our grief and our pain. We pray for the children of our world, that they may grow up knowing love and security. We pray for all children who suffer physical or mental abuse. We pray for all communities in our world who live with the memories of massacre and gross cruelty. We pray for all who are corrupted by power and who regard human life as cheap. We pray for parents who have suffered the death of a child.
We pray for parents and guardians that they may be given grace to care for the children entrusted to them. As we celebrate the coming of the Christ child, we rejoice in the fellowship of the holy innocents and commit the children of our communities, our nation and our world to you, our righteous God. Merciful Father, accept these prayers for the sake of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>